Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. My name is Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about Gone Girl. Now, I'm going to talk about both the film and the movie because some of you may have read the book, some of you may have seen the movie, or both or neither. Uh, But I think that the movie adaptation is actually quite a good adaptation of the book, and so I'm going to kind of fold them into one conversation. If you're unfamiliar with the plot of Gone Girl, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give you your spoiler alert here. I'm also going to give a content warning for this episode because... There are themes related to sexual assault and domestic violence and violence in general in the book that I'm and the movie that I'll be talking about throughout the episode. There are also mentions of suicide or making a plan to uh, attempt suicide in both the book and the movie. So just a a general content warning here as well. Um, So for our (laughs) listeners who aren't familiar Gone Girl is essentially the story of a woman named Amy Dunn, who is married to Nick Dunn, and they have recently moved from Brooklyn, New York to a small town in Missouri. We know that her husband is having an affair with one of his students because he teaches at a small college, and one day Amy goes missing, and Nick seems to be the main suspect in what has happened to her. Now, the big twist, which, again, spoilers, the big twist is that Amy has actually faked her own death, her own murder by her husband, and has escaped and is on the road with the intention of going off living her life on her own for a few months and then taking her own life. However, due to a series of kind of kooky consequences or circumstances, Amy realizes that she does not want to take her own life, but she actually wants to return to her husband and kind of see if she can get him to change the way that he interacts in their relationship after this kind of traumatic or upsetting situation that he's been through. In the process of her trying to return back to Nick, uh, she gets her money stolen and ends up reconnecting with one of her ex-partners, her ex-boyfriend, Desi, who uh, turns out is a major creep and is so excited to have Amy back in his life and have control over her again that he essentially is holding her hostage in his apartment. So she fakes a sexual assault and murders him um, while they're having sex, then returns triumphantly to Nick to essentially say, look what I've gone through just to get back to you. Uh, You can't say any other woman has done that for you. And ultimately, the book concludes and the film concludes with them kind of in a a stalemate that they have to continue on in this marriage, even though now Nick is terrified of Amy. Um, But Amy has a lot of the power in the relationship because she's kind of demonstrated what she's capable of. And, uh, you know, I'm skipping over a a lot of details. If you haven't seen or read it yet, I highly recommend it. Um, The book was written in 2012 and does deal a lot with, I think the background of it is kind of like post-recession or during recession America and kind of like the despondency or the desperation of like economically depressed areas is the backdrop for this story, uh, which I'm not going to spend too much time talking about in this episode. But I do think that the fact that this book was written and came out in this era and is set in a smaller town in the south of America does Uh, set it up to be a a little more unique than if it took place in a big city like New York City or Los Angeles. Uh, The author is Jillian Flynn. She has written several books that actually do take place in the South and do center around uh, female characters who are not perfect and have quite a few flaws. 
And she has kind of, I think, pioneered the modern female anti-hero. That's kind of like where Flynn's work slots in to literature. Uh, I am a huge fan of Gillian Flynn's work. I've read pretty much everything that she's written, even like her short stories. I think that the books are fantastic. I think that her characters are incredibly unique and complicated and makes it difficult to like them. Um, But I think our inability to like her female antihero character says a lot more about sexism than it does about Flynn's characters themselves or her writing style. And I will talk more about that point, obviously, as as we go through the episode. Um, But I guess that is a point of bias I come from is that I do really enjoy uh, her work. And I think that overall, I would say her pieces are feminist. They have a lot to say about the way that women and men interact with each other and the pressure that patriarchy puts on on people of all genders. Uh, I know that her work can be quite controversial and not everyone has the same reaction. And so I hope that as I talk through some of the themes that I noticed in Gone Girl and some of the psychological concepts that uh, we can kind of see why it's such a controversial work or why people have very strong reactions to it. Uh, I remember when I first read Gone Girl and then dragged one of my college roommates to the film version to see it. This would have been in like 2015, 2016. Uh, I like begged one of my roommates to go see it with me because I'd loved the book so much. And I came out of the movie and I was like absolutely losing my mind raving about how good the movie was and my roommate was like that was one of the worst movies I've ever seen (laughs) so even anecdotally I've experienced people having very different reactions to Gone Girl than I have and so I just acknowledge like you may be listening to this and be like why is she talking about this so highly I hate that book or movie Uh, but I think that's part of why Flynn's work is so controversial is people really have a hard time figuring out how to feel about the character specifically about Amy Dunn. Now, in the movie version, uh, Amy Dunn is played by Rosamund Pike, who uh, recently got a shout out in the Pride and Prejudice episode, if you haven't listened to that yet, because she also plays the oldest daughter in the Pride and Prejudice movie. I thought Rosamund Pike was an excellent choice for this role. She really embodies the kind of like shifting nature of Amy's personality. She, she plays the like sweet feminine side of her really well and also the kind of like psychopathic side really well as too and then Ben Affleck plays Nick Dunn the husband which again I think was a fantastic choice because whether this is fair or not Ben Affleck has kind of been associated with like mediocre men kind of getting getting whatever he wants um and making it through life with like really hot partners and he really, I think, embodies who Nick Dunn is as well. And he does a good good job in the, in the film as well. That's kind of our background of this story across the book and the film. And there are three main things that I want to talk about in the context of the film and the book. And the first is obviously feminism. Then I want to also talk about the way that marriage is portrayed and what it can teach us about marriage. Um, and then violence and the motivation for violent or a deviant actions. So those are the three main things that I'm going to go through today. I'm obviously going to start with feminism because it's my favorite. <laughs> um, and I, I, I want to say up top that I resolutely think that Gone Girl is a feminist text and that any portrayal of misogyny or um, like accusation of misogyny about the way characters are portrayed uh, are actually parts of the characters themselves that are necessary for this to be an anti-hero story. And one of the things that I think makes this a, a feminist text is that Amy Dunn is not a good person. And it is important for feminism and and for representation of all types of people to include stories where oppressed or marginalized people are not good people. Um, Like women are not always sweet, nice, nonviolent people. Like Amy Dunn does some things that are reprehensible. She murders, she lies, steals, she frames her husband for murder. She does a lot of very bad things that if a man was doing, we would also say are not not good actions to take. And so Amy Dunn herself being unlikable does not make her character misogynistic. And that true representation in media is the ability for people to see all types of people like themselves. 
Like there are so many examples of men in media that are bad people or complicated people that make uh, decisions with dubious motivations. And I wouldn't call that misandry because you have a man who does bad things. Like then every episode of Law and Order SVU should be taken off the air because that's like so many of the villains in those shows are like men doing bad things. And we don't even bat an eye at that to say like, oh, that's not fair to show men as villains because men also get to be portrayed as heroes quite frequently and are shown to be in quite a spectrum of characters. It's the same thing about like representation for different ethnic groups. Like a lot of the pushback about representation in the past has been that, well, it's just slotting certain ethnic groups into categories like the sassy black friend or the smart Asian girl or you know, any or like stereotypes of Latino or Hispanic people as like uh, doing day labor or, you know, not being educated and not being able to speak English. Like those are stereotypes that have been used and as used as an excuse for like, well, we have done representation. There are, you know, such and such groups represented in movies, but the representation is not complete. That there are aspects of the culture or the group that are not being fully shown in media and that includes the possibility of being villainous and not being villainous just for the nature of being part of that group but of just being villainous because human beings are complicated and can do bad things can be evil and make choices that hurt other people Uh, and so that's why I think that Gone Girl is a feminist text and that Gillian Flynn is showing us part of the spectrum of what it can mean to be a woman Uh, and what it can mean to be a woman living in a patriarchal society. Uh, And so I want to bring up this article that I was reading called, this is a great title, it's called, I'm the bitch that makes you a man, conditional love as female vengeance in Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl. And this was written by uh, an author named Osborne and published in like 2017 in the Gender Forum. And I really, 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 really (laughs) liked this article. I highly recommend you reading the whole thing. If you're interested in it, it's uh, the citation is on the website with this at the sources page. Um, But Osborne really breaks down a lot of the ways in which Flynn's work is a feminist text and what it is responding to specifically in American culture. And I don't even cover half of what that their article talked about, but I did want to focus a few things. I'm also using an article written by an author, last name Burke, called From Cool Girl to Dead Girl, Gone Girl and the Allure of Female Victimhood, which was uh, in a book called Domestic Noir, which was published in 2018. So those are the two main sources aside from the actual <laughs> movie and book. So Osborne posits that Gone Girl is actually a, a satire. Which is interesting because I've seen Gone Girl be described as a thriller, a gothic, a noir, a satire. Like, as much as people can't pin down how they feel about Amy, people can't pin down the genre of the book as well. And I think that's part of Flynn's writing style is that she does cross genres. And I I would probably describe it as like a thriller because it is... Or, or even like a true, not true crime, but like a crime book. So I guess noir might be even closer or a better um, description of it because it does focus on this sort of like solving this mystery, even though Flynn gives you the answer <laughs> about halfway through. Anyway, Osborne posits that it's a satire because it is a satire of the response to violence against women that are perpetrated by the patriarchy, particularly how the patriarchy is represented in the media and constructs these idealized notions of love and marriage. So essentially what that is saying is that what Amy is reacting to in the book and the film is not just her own marriage, but she is reacting to this idea of marriage as this like perfect construct that can meet all of your higher emotional needs. And Osborne even like references Maslow, um, which Maslow has the hierarchy needs and at the top of the hierarchy is self-actualization, which we've talked about in other episodes as well. Um, but that uh, American culture and American media specifically has constructed this idea that is influenced by the patriarchy, that a marriage or an intimate relationship is supposed to meet all of your higher emotional needs like self-actualizing. And that if you 
uh, find yourself a partner, if you can find yourself a life partner, essentially, they will then be able to meet all of your needs. Um, but because American culture is so individualistic, there is no thought for the rep- the reciprocity of that is then you have to be the sole re- responsibility of your partner's needs as well. And when we shrink down the responsibility for self-actualization to one person, your partner, that becomes overwhelming and it is impossible for that partner to meet all of those needs. And when that realization comes, relationships dissolve and, and break down. And so Osborne is positing that that is what Flynn was creating a satire of when writing Gone Girl. And I have to say, I, I agree and I think that this is a really interesting um, thing that I'm going to talk about more in the like marriage section about like how we <laughs> put all of our uh, ideals onto or all of our hopes for our needs being met onto a partner. Um, but that that is how this is like a satire and how it is a feminist satire because the work is specifically addressing how the patriarchy constructs this idea that there is the the idea that like a man will be the person to solve those needs for you and that a woman will solve their man's needs um, in in a way that only like femininity or women can do. And again, when we're talking about the patriarchy, it's gonna really focus in on like heterosexual relationships and people who conform to the idea of a gender binary and so uh, leaves out a lot of other like lived experiences. Gone Girl, the, the story also focuses on how psychologically burdensome living under the patriarchy is for women. And Amy essentially represents someone who has fractured under the pressure of a patriarchal society. And if you're familiar with the cool girl speech, which Amy gives in the book, this is a perfect example of all of the pressure that is put upon women in a patriarchal Western culture like America And you can see why Amy is breaking underneath the weight of this, especially after being moved from her home in Brooklyn to Missouri, where she has no social support. She's been isolated from her family. The only person left for her to relate to or connect with is her husband. And so I'm going to actually read the cool girl speech from the book because I think it is the absolute best (laughs) monologue that has ever been written. But it also is kind of like the um, representation or the actualization of what this pressure is, this patriarchal pressure is. So here goes. This is what Amy says in, in the book. This is her cool girl monologue. Men always say that as the defining compliment, don't they? She's a cool girl. Being the cool girl means I am a hot, brilliant, funny woman who adores football, poker, dirty jokes, and burping, who plays video games, drinks cheap beer, loves threesomes and anal sex, and jams hot dogs and hamburgers into her mouth like she's hosting the world's biggest culinary gangbang while somehow maintaining a size two. Because cool girls are above all hot. Hot and understanding. Cool girls never get angry. They only smile in a chagrined, loving manner and let their men do whatever they want. Go ahead, shit on me. I don't mind. I'm the cool girl. Men actually think this girl exists. Maybe they're fooled because so many women are willing to pretend to be this girl. For a long time, cool girl offended me. I used to see men, friends, co-workers, strangers, giddy over these awful pretender women, and I'd want to sit these men down and calmly say, you are not dating a woman. You are dating a woman who has watched too many movies written by socially awkward men who'd like to believe that this kind of woman exists and might kiss them. I'd want to grab the poor guy by his lapels or messenger bag and say, the bitch doesn't really love chili dogs that much. No one loves chili dogs that much. And the cool girls are even more pathetic. They're not even pretending to be the woman they want to be. They're pretending to be the woman a man wants them to be. Oh, and if you're not a cool girl, I beg you not to believe that your man doesn't want the cool girl. It may be a slightly different version. Maybe he's a vegetarian, so cool girl loves Satan and is great with dogs. Or maybe he's a hipster artist, so cool girl is a tattooed, bespectacled nerd who loves comics. There are variations to the window dressing, but believe me, he wants cool girl, who is basically the girl who likes every fucking thing he likes and doesn't ever complain. How do you know you're not cool girl? Because he says things like, I like strong women. If he says that to you, he will at some point fuck someone else. 
because I like strong women is code for I hate strong women. Now that is a speech. (laughs) The first time I read that, it, it hit me like a tongue of bricks. And I think that one of the reasons why people have such strong reactions to the concepts in Gone Girl is that the patriarchy is a much more subversive or subtle effect on on women than it did in previous eras. And if you are familiar with the concept of feminism as having like multiple movements, like first wave feminism was about getting the right to vote. Second wave feminism was about civil rights for women, such as being able to work outside of the home, getting credit cards, like being able to be independent without a man. And third wave or as we move into the fourth wave feminism, is more about women being able to experience um, equality in societies and also including uh, other identities in that that fight. And in, in second wave feminism, it was really easy to point to examples of the patriarchy, right? Like in the 1950s, women weren't allowed to have their own credit cards. Like a man, like her father or husband had to have her credit card for her. Or, you know, women were not always able to work outside of the home, even though they had during the war, during World War II. And then when the men returned from combat, they had to give up those jobs. So there were like clear, visible examples that you could point to and say, like, this is the patriarchy. Like women are being left out of certain spaces and certain roles because of patriarchy and paternalism, which has decided they're too weak to handle uh, or not smart enough, or whatever, like whatever these like dumb <laughs> biological determinisms of gender things are, right? Like women can't handle these things, so men have have to protect them and not allow them to do these things. That was easy to point out to. You. I mean, there are still people who like don't have problems with some of those things, but you can point to that very clearly and say like that is patriarchy. But in more modern waves of feminism, there are still subtle parts of patriarchy that are not as easy to point to and I think the cool girl speech like symbolizes or wraps up a lot of those like for example the the speech is talking about how uh if a man is dating a cool girl he will expect her to kind of have the same basic functions as other cool girls but to be essentially customized to his interests like the vegetarian versus hipster artist comparison And the idea that a woman can't be her own person and be considered cool or an attractive person to enter into a relationship with is part of the patriarchy. Like women are still having to perform to male expectation. And that is what Amy Dunn has been doing for her entire time. She's been, well, since she's been alive, (laughs) Um, one with her husband because she has become his cool girl. She has done what he wanted. She doesn't eat junk food because he doesn't think she should be fat. Uh, She picked up and left her life for him because he made this decision and she doesn't complain about it. Like she says in the speech, you just sit there with a a gentle smile and you know that your man is going to get away with everything that he wants. She has been letting him cheat on her. She knows that he's cheating. She has not said anything. Like Amy in the beginning of the book is held down by these patriarchal expectations that she'd be the cool girl. And at the same time, as we learn more about Amy, we realize her entire life, she's had this like idealized representation of a, a cool girl hanging over her because her parents are authors and they have a series of books called Amazing Amy that is based on their daughter, Amy. And this book series is all about a little girl who can do everything. She, like, never makes mistakes. She's amazing. And she has all these adventures and is a good girl. And Amy has always had that hanging over her. So I think that the context of that makes it make more sense why Amy snaps in the way she does. It's not just that she's had this weight of her husband's patriarchal expectations of how she should perform in their marriage hanging over her. She's literally had her entire life of being compared to a fictional character that is perfect and and unflawed. And she has been bearing the weight of that since she has been a child. And it culminates in her marriage to Nick. And the events of the book actually take place 
after their fifth year, their fifth year anniversary. So they've been married for five years. And it's kind of like Amy has run into a wall and she can't take anymore. And I think that that is one of the most important parts of the book is that it shows us or it gives us a good example of there is a limit to how much people can take. Now, caveat, not everyone is going to like murder their ex and frame their husband for murder. (laughs) But people snap under the weight of these expectations, whether it's from the patriarchy or white supremacy or from a religion or the government, people can only take so much of that psychological burden. And some people may have a longer tolerance. Some people may not. And we all snap in some way. Some of the ways we snap is we get rooted into what's called cognitive dissonance, where We just have to essentially ignore the realities of our life and focus on the parts that we can accept and make sense to us and ignore the other realities. A good example of cognitive dissonance is in uh, bad relationships, like in Amy's. Amy could have gone further into cognitive dissonance and just ignored all of the evidence that her husband was having an affair, ignored all of the signs that they weren't communicating well or that he had expectations for her that she couldn't meet and only focus on the information that she had that supports them still being together. That's one way she could have snapped. Some people snap and have what we might call a midlife crisis, right? They no longer know who they are, what their identity is. And so they go on a I guess, kind of like a rumspringa of trying to figure out who they are and what is their identity because their old identity is no longer uh, in their grasp and no longer works for them. Um, That could include things like leaving your relationship, quitting your job, moving to a new place, leaving behind your friends, starting over in in, uh, who you hang out with or you spend time with and just kind of figuring out like who you are, who who are you to the world and to yourself. And I'm sure there are cases where people do snap and become violent like Amy, but I'm, I'm focusing more on the relatable <laughs> aspects of this. And in the, in the story of Gone Girl, we realize that there are actually at least three Amys that were trying to figure out who, who is the real Amy. There is Amazing Amy in the book series, and she does contain parts of, of Amy herself. There's cool girl Amy Dunn, who she has become for her husband. And then there is the real Amy. And I think one of the reasons why Amy's first plan was to take her own life after framing her husband was because she doesn't know who the real Amy is. There is no Amy outside of Amy Dunn and Amazing Amy. And because she has been so haunted by these like oppressive identities, the only kind of solution she can think of is just to end it all to take her life and to let the like struggle of who is the real Amy kind of end and I think we see that the Amy who returns to her husband at the end of the movie and the end of the film is probably closer to the real Amy Um, but I think it's hard for us to know because this is the Amy who has snapped under pressure And there is no longer a way back to who could have been the real Amy before she was hardened under the pressure of the patriarchy, her marriage, her culture. And the reality is that Amazing Amy, Cool Girl Amy, and Psychopath Amy are all parts of the real Amy. And so the work to be done would be to integrate all of those parts of herself and realize who that she is. And I say that because as always, I encourage you if you are having a, you know, identity crisis or feeling this psychological burden of being like absolutely crushed by culture or society around you, that there are ways to get support in therapy or treatment where your provider would work with you to integrate these parts of yourself so that you can definitively say this is who who I am or who I want to be um, without having to be beholden to these these other pressures. And that if Amy had had these, maybe if Amy had had opportunities to have her true self validated and confirmed, then she may not have snapped under this pressure in the same way and made it, been able to deal with it uh, differently. I also just to wrap up this like conversation about the is the about the text being feminist or not um, is that 
uh, a lot of what I've seen in like media reactions or reviews that I read online is that because Amy is not likable, that makes it misogynistic. And that if you can't like the female characters in a like story, then they are not good female characters. And I like have mentioned this before, but I think that is more about sexism and the idea that a woman who is unlikable is either like fake <laughs> or, or doesn't exist, like that you would like all women. And the reality is, is that again, if we want to have good representation for all types of people, then it means we also have to represent the ways in which women and other marginalized groups are unlikable not because of their identities. Amy is not unlikable because she is a woman. In fact, I quite like Amy, if I'm being honest. Amy is unlikable because she violates social norms. She is acting in a way that has total disregard for the people around her and the people that care about her. And it that she would be just as she would be still violating people's norms if Amy was a male character. And so if your reaction to her is that you don't like her character because of how she treats other people, that has nothing to do with her being a woman. That is her actions that she is um, engaging in. And they're designed to make you uncomfortable. They are antisocial at their core. They violate the way that we have decided as a society that we should act. And she is harming other people in her actions. So I, I don't think it matters if it's feminist or not if you like the character, like, that has nothing to do with, like, if the if it's feminist or not. Like, you cannot like feminists. It's okay. I'm giving you permission. You don't have to like all feminists. Maybe you don't even like me. <laughs> but that is not a measure of if something is feminist or not. And if you find yourself reacting to a character, it, it would, I would encourage you to kind of stop and process, what am I reacting to? Am I and would I react to this person the same way if they held a different identity, right? Would we have all, would we as a culture have hated on Amy if she was a man? I don't know. I think that's an interesting conversation to, to keep thinking about. So uh, this book obviously also deals with marriage. That's kind of the main catalyst for the events of the book is Amy and Nick uh, are married and have come uh, up to their fifth year wedding anniversary. Like I, I was saying earlier, Osborne uh, in this article talks about this idea of the idealization of marriage and I really resonated with that uh, that concept and kind of the arguments that Osborne was making and I, I think that that is something I've seen when I've worked with couples or when I've worked with people on their relationship issues is that we have this idea that once you have found a person that you are going to be committing to for the long term, whether that's marriage or a different type of relationship, that that person becomes your only way to get needs met. That person is supposed to be your best friend, your like career counselor, your advocate, your social support, uh, your like lover, your sex partner, and also your spouse in like the legal <laughs> sense of the word, right? Like that's a lot of jobs to give to one person and we are setting up our partners to fail if we're putting all of those expectations onto them. And I think, you know, one way to kind of have compassion for ourselves in that is to know that it's not that you're like a bad partner if you do that. But it is like this, it's this cultural idea that has been put into our media. And there are many examples in American media of like, the only goal is to get to like finding the person that's going to be this like long-term partner, right? Like all rom-coms are about finding this person, finding this person, and that this person fulfills so many of these needs. And very few media pieces focus on the after, right? The like after you've identified and committed to the person, what happens? And that's where Gone Girl is unique in that it is focusing on the after, right? It's a it's a book, it's a story about somebody or a couple who's five years into their marriage and has been together for, for a little bit over that. Um, and that they are expecting perfect relationships from each other and both are feeling this like emptiness or this uh, disappointment that the their partner can't meet their needs. Like Nick is cheating on Amy 
because he is feeling unfulfilled professionally and, and personally in his relationship. And Amy is concocting a plan to frame him for murder because he's cheating on her and she has given up a lot of her life to support him and move to this new place. And neither one of them can find a way to kind of address that with each other or to change their expectations for the marriage. And so both of them have to keep their solutions or quote unquote solutions secret, right? He's not going to tell her like, well, I'm sexually unfulfilled in this relationship. So I need to find a sexual partner uh, that can do that for me while we figure ourselves out. Right. And she can't tell him like, I really wish I could frame you for murder because I'm sick of you. Right. Like they're, they're stuck in this like idealization of what their, their marriage is supposed to be. And Osborne actually posits that this comes from, uh, the like nature of consumer culture that consumer culture has uh, taught us that we have to kind of seek all of our empowerment or all of our um, support through consumption that you if you could just consume more you would hit what you need and you would be able to express yourself and this like consumerness or consumer culture does not focus on how to build relationship with other people. It just focuses on the more that you consume, the more you can express yourself and the the more empowered you will be. And they are, Amy and Nick are at a point where they can't consume out of their problems anymore. They've, they've hit a wall and they've done everything that they thought they were supposed to do. They got, they started dating, they got married, they got a house together. They are supposed to be working on having a baby Um, But they are at a standstill where they've done all of the consumption that you can do in a relationship and there's no like roadmap for the future. It's all about consuming individually then rather than finding empowerment through uh, building a positive and mutually assuring relationship. The only way for empowerment is through consumption. And I think this is like a tricky (laughs) tricky theme and is difficult to talk about in the context of something that like we are consuming like we are paying for the book or the movie like we're consuming it ourselves uh and maybe you felt empowered or felt like you were able to express through the consumption of it so it's like it becomes a like a hypocritical situation um but I think that there is something to this idea that uh our culture or society doesn't have like a roadmap for what you do after you've hit the kind of like consumption milestones. Like I, I, I'm thinking of like a wedding as being like the ultimate consumption milestone of a relationship. Like the amount of money that people spend on weddings, the amount of gifts that you get when you get married, like it, it, it does center around a lot of consumption from everybody involved rather like whether it's the couple or the people that are coming to support them at a wedding and there is an entire industry around this type of consumption that has been built up and you know I'm going to talk about America because it's where I am but there is like this industry around this and there is almost like a, a a pressure to consume more like if you go to a wedding and see them do something you're like oh I want to add that to my wedding or I need to make that better than my cousin's wedding <laughs> like you know adding adding this pressure to keep consuming and then you hit it you hit the peak you're at the day where you spent all the money and you're literally consuming food and drink and then what's next like what is next for some people it's having a child and that itself comes with its own consumption but after the like flurry of baby showers fades, what is next? There is no more consumption milestones to hit. And so that's where I think this idea of consumer culture impacts marriages. And because there is no like consumer milestone, although I you know maybe for people it's like certain anniversaries, but there isn't the same industry around like a 20 year anniversary party as there is around a wedding. Um, there is an industry there isn't uh, opportunities for consumption, so there aren't uh, media made about what happens after the wedding and like the first few years of a baby's life. And Gone Girl is slotting into that like absence. Gone Girl is showing you after you've done the consumption, you've hit the milestones, you've had the wedding, and you're floundering to have the baby, and that, that that's not coming. 
what is left and Nick and Amy don't seem to have anything left for each other they're they're drifting apart and Amy feels that her role after she realizes that she can uh kind of go back to Nick and and she plots her plan to to return and and get back into the relationship she realizes that she has to stop being the cool girl and take like power back in the relationship and that the power does not come from consumption but comes from her own internal sense of empowerment and although it's quite twisted she has demonstrated that she's able to come up with these plans and do things that she never expected herself to be able to do and she's realized that through this whole process with Nick and so she can come back to the relationship and know that I can do this and one of the the things that she talks about at the end one of her like additional monologues is she talks about unconditional versus conditional love and Amy essentially says there is no such thing as unconditional love it's undisciplined but conditional love is the way to go and she confronts Nick after she comes home because he's like shocked and does not want to see her and she essentially says like I did all of this for you I killed a man for you I came back to you I have done all of this for you what can you do for me and so she has essentially brought that consumption and made it visible in the marriage. She's pointing to it and saying, I can come to you with a list of four or five things that I've done for you. What are you going to bring to the table? And rather than trying to um, find self-actualization or find like emotional needs from her partner, she's saying like, this is what I have physically done for you. What are you going to physically do for me? And it's obviously not going to be a healthy relationship. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think we need a sequel to know that like this is not a good relationship, but she has flipped it on its head and that's where it becomes a satire is that she has come in and said, no, my ultimate lesson is not that I need unconditional love. It's that I need conditional love. And so I'm going to, you know, maybe throw a little therapist time out here and say like, this is, should not be a model <laughs> for a relationship but I think that it teaches us a lot about what our culture says about relationships that that is the conclusion that Amy has come to that it is not about having a partner who can love you for all of your flaws and doesn't need anything from you it a relationship should be about demanding needs from each other and being very explicit about what those needs are and you know, Amy's way of going about it is not healthy, is again, violating the rights of others is not, uh, not helpful. But I think there is a clarity to the way in which Amy sees her relationship after this event. And that some people may, who are trapped in this kind of like idealization and, and, uh, need for their marriage to cover all of their, their emotional needs, there is a clarity of being able to say like, well, actually we can't be all things for each other. There are things that we can do for each other and things that we cannot. And you shouldn't have to love me for all my flaws. You should tell me what my flaws are and that I can change them. Again, it's a cynical, it's a satirical look at relationships, but I think there is something interesting there about, um, how a demand or a desire for unconditional love can put a lot of stress on a relationship and there are other ways of getting your needs met that don't have to be put solely upon your partner and I think if that's the takeaway I would want to have for this episode it would be that you should not and don't need to get all of your needs met from one person from a romantic partner that it is important to have other fulfilling relationships in your life to have other needs met and that friends, mentors, uh, community, larger communities, whether it's religious or based around shared identities, like there could be supports in other areas of your life that help you on your journey to self-actualization and can reduce the burden in which we place on our partners to be all and be, be the end all to uh, our needs. And that Reaching the tippy top of the Maslow pyramid is not uh, a straight line that, you know, we slide uh, up and down and we find ourselves in different seasons of our lives where different needs need to be met. And so I think it's appropriate to have different people who can meet 
those different needs at different times. And to ask your partner to do all of that for you is unfair. And it's unfair for your partner to ask you to do all of that for them as well. And so, yeah, my takeaway would just be to like examine how you think about romantic partners in your life and are there ways in which you could be seeking other types of relationships or other types of support to help you to take some of the pressure off of your partner so that we don't have a Amy Dunn situation. (laughs) Not that I think any of my listeners would do something like what Amy Dunn does, but you know, crack under the pressure in some way. All right. Lastly, I want to talk about the violence and like motivation for violence in the the story. So as I have already mentioned, uh, she does, Amy does kill someone uh, very violently. It's it's really disturbing in in the movie and in the book, the like description of it. She does um, kill someone. She also, I think it is violence in the way that she like frames her husband and some of the things that she does to get to a point where she can disappear she uh like at one point she rigs her toilet to be able to like collect pee from a pregnant woman so that she can fake a pregnancy test like she's manipulating people and and I think it kind of all comes together under the umbrella of, of, of violence she's hurting other people in her actions even if she only kills one person, um, but but Amy kind of engages in, in violence and deviant behavior. And when I say deviant, I mean like in the way that it violates societal norms or violates the rights of others. She's engaging in deviance and violence. And, you know, I think one of her motivations is that she feels trapped. She feels like she doesn't have any agency. She feels completely stripped of her like rights and, and agency and autonomy. And I think in a macro sense that this is often the motivation for violence or violating the rights of others. That when people feel that there is no other option for them, that violence or deviance is the only way to behave. And I think if we can perceive some forms of violence as a communication or a message, what is behind the violence? What is the motivation you know, Amy's motivation is to take back control, to have a sense that she has a say and that she matters, that she's not just a cool girl, some guy's wife who's like beheld into his whims and dragged across the country by him. She's wanting to feel the sense of like, I matter and I take up space. And so like examining what could be behind violence. Sometimes what's behind violence is pain Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's complicated by things like mental illness or substance use. It's not always like a very clear answer. Um, But violence, much like any other type of behavior, has reasons behind it. And we can examine that and try to figure out what could be motivating someone. Another thing to remember is that this uh, story or the concept of Gone Girl is also considered a transgressive piece of literature. And so transgressive means that when a character is reacting to a feeling of pressure or containment by society, they have to act in a transgressive way or a way in which violates the social norms they have to get relief from their pressure. So I think there are a lot of people who have experienced some sort of like need for transgressive relief. In, in society, like, and across all, like, cultures, across time, across history, like, people can be in situations where they feel so much pressure by either the society they live in, the family that they grow up in, the relationships that they're in, that the only way, it's essentially having your back up to the corner, like, you have nowhere else to go, and so the only way is to lash forward. And I bring this up in and I think in the context of the episode from last week about abortion. And, you know, if you're clued in at all to what's going on in the U.S., like, it's not going so great. Uh, and people are going to start feeling that their back is against the wall. And people are going to act in ways that are transgressive, that violate social norms because their back is against the wall. And I just, I say that now to help you to understand that often the way that people are reacting is to 
like larger societal forces and sometimes your coworker is going to snap at you at work and it's not really about the email you sent <laughs> you know like or or someone is going to cut you off in traffic and it's not about you it's like about other things and I'm, I, I don't want to make this seem so simplistic as like the only reason people do violence is because they're like worried about the future but I think that we're going to see some things happen in the next few months or years as economic situations get worse, as people in large portions of this country lose access to things like education and healthcare, people are going to get backed up against the wall and it's not going to go well uh, for people to get relief. It's going to be hard for them to get relief and that may mean that people in your life are taking it out on you. You're taking it out on other people. We may see more like larger acts of violence or acts of deviance. And it's a tricky thing because, we, you know, I don't want to justify like hurting other people or violating social norms. But I also do want to offer up an opportunity for empathy. And I know that I'm like taking Gone Girl and jumping all the way to like, what if there's like a mass violence event because of Roe v. Wade being overturned? Like, I know that's quite a leap, but I think that this is a good opportunity to just showcase when people have their back against the wall and have lost all sense of agency, all sense of control over themselves, their motivation for engaging in social norms for like being kind and respecting the rights of others is gone there's no motivation for that because you don't have the time to be polite when you're afraid for your life and so that may have an impact on how we all relate to each other as we move forward I hope that I'm wrong I would love to be wrong um but I don't know what I mean we're just gonna kind (laughs) of we're gonna have to see uh see how it all plays out and one last point that I want to talk about that actually comes from the Burke article is that Amy Dunn represents this like obsession that American culture has with victimhood, specifically the victimhood of white women. And that's one thing that I do like about the book is that I think you can pick that up without Flynn having to be like very explicit of like only white women get attention when they go missing or are murdered and other types of women don't like she doesn't have to spell that out for you. You can just kind of see how it's playing out. Um, but like essentially the whole town that Amy lives in is like turned upside down when she goes missing and there's like candlelight vigils for her. There's a lot of attention on her. People are like very sad that she's gone missing. Um, but in, I don't know if the movie talks about this as much, but in the book there is a like rundown mall nearby the, the town where they've moved to in Missouri where Amy actually goes to buy a gun before disappearing. And it's like, this mall where like the only people that live there are like unhoused people who have like no other resources there's like a lot of crime there everything's like dilapidated and broken down and essentially it's like women go missing there all the time but they're poor women or they're sex workers or they're just like not plugged into the community because they're kind of uh nomadic and moving from place to place And no one cares about those women who go missing, but everyone cares when a fairly wealthy, beautiful white woman goes missing. And that is just such a parallel to, um, like culture and the way that true crime and news stories get treated. There are famous cases of women who have gone missing or been murdered and they get so much attention because the woman is like classically beautiful or is like a white blonde blue-eyed woman while in the same time there are black brown indigenous women being murdered and going missing and their cases get little to no attention even from law enforcement and so gone girl i think and and burke points this out well of why it's such an interesting interesting noir uh book or film is that phenotypically Amy is the perfect victim like she she looks like the perfect victim but behaviorally or in her actions she is not like what we want from perfect victims is for them to be meek for them to not act back act out in any way or do anything that could be construed as like bad behavior and I talked about this in the context of the Amber Heard trial right of that like Amber Heard was not considered to be a perfect victim because there were instances where she also lashed out 
um, to her partner or where she maybe behaved in a way that we wouldn't attribute to like a good girl or a nice girl. And Amy is the same way. Well, not she's way more extreme. But Amy is not a meek victim in this situation. It's actually all manufactured by her. She's not a victim at all. She She's on the run and like trying to get a, a better life for herself. But she doesn't fit into her victimhood. She doesn't fit into it. She doesn't sit with it. And if anyone were ever to find out the true story of Amy Dunn's actions, they would not hold the same reverence for her as they do when they believe that she was like a white woman who was kidnapped. And I think that that is such a unique aspect of Gone Girl and something that like should be focused on because our American culture really does have this like obsession with victimhood. And the second you find something that disproves someone is a perfect victim, it can become used. It can be used to like turn against them. And we've seen this over and over and over again with the Bill Cosby trial, with the Woody Allen situation, with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Like if any of the victims of these perpetrators come forward and have anything in their past, even if it's like they struggle with addiction or they engage in something like sex work, which shouldn't be considered a bad thing anyway, but they have anything in their past that doesn't make them a perfect idealized victim, then they're not worthy of our attention and they're not worthy of justice. And that becomes the conversation about like, did this person deserve it? It also happens all the time with like black men who are killed by the police, right? Like even all the way back to Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown, that they did something, they must have done something wrong. And so because at one point they did steal a pack of uh, Skittles or they have done underage drinking they don't deserve to be considered victims of police brutality and that's just like absolute nonsense we have so much research that shows that like they're like victimhood is complicated that people react in different situations i mean i was just talking about when you feel your agency has been stripped you may engage in violence right you may engage in behavior that violates social norms because you don't have any other options and so if someone is a victim of domestic violence, of police brutality, of you know, you name it, then their agency has been stripped from them and they may react in ways that you don't like or that we as a, as a whole don't like because they have no other options or they, they perceive that they don't have any other options because their agency has been stripped from them. And I think that this is a conversation that has been been happening in the, in the culture m- more often, but we even just saw like with the, the Gabby Petito case, like Everybody was obsessed with that case and like following it every day. Like I had coworkers at work who would like go and check their phones so that they could get updates and then like come back and talk about it. It's like all anybody on Twitter was talking about, like all my social media was filled with mentions of this case. And it's a horrible case. Don't get me wrong. And like that is a horrible, horrible example of domestic violence gone wrong and the very real fear that women have that their partners can murder them. Um, but Gabby Petito got a lot of attention because she's a young, conventionally attractive white woman. And at the same time, there were also, uh, brown, black, indigenous women who've gone missing or have been murdered that weren't getting the same national attention. And Gone Girl, I think is a great example of like, even if you think someone is a perfect victim, there is no such thing as a perfect victim. You can look like the, the person that we expect you to be and behaving in very different ways. And so not to say that, that anyone has actually done what Amy Dunn has done. That's a lot of Dunn's. <laughs> but that when we're talking about these cases or like when true crime is at its like heyday, we have to keep in mind that just because someone is a victim doesn't mean that they're a perfect person, but not being a perfect person also doesn't mean that you don't deserve justice. Like people are complicated all the time, whether you're a perpetrator or a victim or both people are complicated and we have to keep that in mind. And no victim is perfect and no perpetrator is purely evil. And it's hard to hold that. Sometimes we just want to like jump on the dog pile and like, it feels good to like see vindication and feel see like revenge happening uh but the reality is is that people are complicated and no one is a perfect victim and that doesn't mean that you're not allowed to get justice and get support like victims should be believed and should be supported for the nature of being victims of of horrible 
uh, things done to them. And analyzing a victim's behavior is not an appropriate thing to do to determine if they deserve what they got or not, right? That's like not the point at all. So again, (laughs) my takeaways I think think are going to be one, there's no such thing as perfect victimhood and we have to, you know, account for like the complexity of human behavior. Two, your partner cannot be your entire world, that you can still get valuable support and uh, meet emotional needs from other relationships, other types of support, and take some of the pressure off of your partner. Um, and that Con Girl is a feminist text. It's it's feminist AF <laughs> and, and is also really good. <laughs> and so if you've listened to this episode, I just go watch it again. Like, honestly you got to like i watched it so long ago and then rewatching it just like reinvigorated my passion <laughs> for gone girl um and you don't have to be a cool girl you don't have to be a cool girl you can also listen to episode 21 about pick me girls if you want more encouragement for why you don't have to be a cool girl uh you can just be you uh but yeah so this was a this is a good uh good topic i think it's a great movie great film and there's so much to dive into and is also, I think, great practice for sometimes people are really unlikable, uh, but sometimes you you still got to like hold on to their story and listen to them and 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 kind of get the, the background, even if they're just deeply, deeply unlikable. Uh, and so with that, I just want to say thank you for listening through the whole episode. I'll see you in the next one. Bye bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.